0: Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast. I'm Kimberly Johnson, and today we have a very special show. Uh, we normally do shows every Wednesday, and my co-host Steph Walton and I will be doing one this Wednesday. But today, I'm going to be flying solo and interviewing actor-director Vincent D'Onofrio. His latest film, The Kid, stars Ethan Hawke and Chris Pratt, and he he directed the film as well as uh, having a role in it. And he's also been on Law & Order, Criminal Intent, And he's entertained audiences for decades in a number of films, including Full Metal Jacket, Men in Black, Mystic Pizza, Ed Wood, and he earned an Emmy nomination for his role on Homicide, Life on the Street. He is one of my favorite actors. We're going to be talking about a bunch of those films and TV shows, and I'm just so thrilled that he's agreed to be on the show. But before we get started, a little reminder that Start Me Up is an independent podcast and it's listener supported. So maybe check out some past shows and see if you like what you hear, and if you do consider becoming a patron by using pa- or visiting Patreon.com/startmeup and then sign up for any dollar amount. Five dollars gets you into and another thing. That's for patrons only, and it's usually Steph and me, and we talk about all kinds of things like uh, sex to pop culture, politics, and occasionally we get pretty personal. And it's it's a, it's a cool show. So check it out, and that's Patreon.com/startmeup. I hope you'll consider supporting our independent podcast. And now that the business is out of the way, please enjoy my interview with Vincent D'Onofrio. Welcome, Vincent.
1: Thank you, good to be here.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm just, I got I to say, um, you're one of my favorite actors, and to have you on the show is uh, a highlight of my life. I've had a couple of um, other actors on the show. I've had Kristen Johnston, who was in Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's cool. And um, I've also had Alyssa Milano, who um, we never talked about acting because she's an activist. So um, I actually introduced her to the Equal Rights Amendment, and when I did, she became... Um, an instant advocate. So most of what we talked about was was our advocacy. And um, so it's just, this is the first, um, aside from Kristen, um, who almost I feel like I'm related to, because we're both tall, sarcastic blondes, but um, aside from (laughs) her, you're the first person I've ever interviewed that's an actor. And um, I wanna ask you about your new film, but I quickly wanna tell you that I used to be an actor too, and so I'll be referencing that in a couple of my questions, but, um, yeah.
1: No, that's, that's fine. I knew that about you by reading stuff.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. That's right. I forgot. I forgot you read my blog. Um, well, let's just start with your film, The Kid. Yeah. That's so you're, you directed you that. I want to do, I want to talk about, first of all, you, you directed it and I know your daughter is in it. So I just want to hear a little bit about it, like, um, how it came to be, um, did you get your daughter cast in this? How, how did this all happen? And just tell us about the film.
1: Yeah, so um, I, I wanted to, to to make a Western for a long time, and I tried. Um, I wrote this other script about a sheriff of a town, and, well, I, I, I actually didn't write the script. I came up with the story, and then, like I usually do, I, I get a writer that I get along with, um, that's collaborative. And then we, he writes, he or she writes the screenplay and then, um, and and, and that's the way it goes. And so I, I, but that, I did that and it came out to be good. And then I was very, um, inexperienced with setting things up and I got too many writers, uh, tangled up in it (laughs) and it became impossible to make. Hmm. And so that actually happened to me a couple of times, twice early in my career, where I trusted um, too many writers at once.
2: Yeah.
1: And the ones that uh, the better writers were the ones that um, I should have, you know, trusted more. And I, but I wanted to give people breaks, and and so it was it was tough. So it it's, it actually stifled two two projects of mine very early on. Hmm. And so this, so I, I, I never made it and then I wanted to make another one. And then I, I, I started thinking about, um, coming of age stories in my life and how I came of age and, and that there were two men in my life, my stepdad and my father, two very different men. My stepdad was an incredible guy. He was, uh, you know, he was, he represented good, you know, mm-hmm. he was he was from, he was of German descent. Um, his family came over from Germany to New York and there was, there's a huge community and there was an even bigger one back in the day of Germans in upstate New York. And so his family grew up there and he, he grew up there and then, um, he, he was just a good hearted man and, and kept me, um, you know, kept me off the streets Hmm. and kept me, um, to get out of, you know, to stay out of mischief—that mischief yeah. I was trying to constantly be in—and you know? <laughs> and he kept me out of it. And uh, and and he succeeded in many ways. Um, and then you know, my dad was an interior designer by trade. He, my dad, was the one that introduced me to theater. He was a darker man. He, he he's still alive, but he's he's he's. We're, 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 I have a feeling we're going to lose him soon. Oh,
0: but I'm sorry. He was
1: he had a much darker life. He was also a. a, a severely depressed most of the time and and back then you know nobody really paid attention to that much about how to fix that and mm-hmm. so yeah, it was this was the man who made a lot of mistakes in life he wasn't a good father he wasn't a good husband and um, but he also had all the artistic qualities that i have are from him hmm. like i could draw i can you know, I you know, the, all the arts are interesting to me, not just acting. But mm-hmm. I try and dive into. I try to stick my nose in everybody's business when it comes <laughs> to art, and and I get that from my father. He was exactly the same way. He burnt a lot of bridges doing that. Yeah, because he was um, just a, a negative type person. But he he was also very talented um, at the same time. But kind of stood in the way of himself because of uh, the burning of many bridges. Yeah. And so I wanted to write a story about how a young boy grows up with, with those two particular kinds of icons. Um, and I thought, and, 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 and I, one night, like all of my ideas come to me, most of them anyway,
3: hmm.
1: unless I'm on a set or something. But yeah. Usually as I, as my, put my head down at the pillow at night
3: <clears throat>
1: after a day of rumination of artistic thoughts and uh cleaning up dog shit and (laughs) and you know and um you know uh joking around with my kids goofing around and you know i put my head on the pillow and i go into like a sort of like a half almost gone asleep state like a sort of delta Mm
2: -hmm.
1: state and um I think of these ideas, and I thought of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and I basically thought of the end of the movie with the, with the three characters, Garrett and the two kids, um, the brother and the sister. And then I worked backwards, and uh, all the way, you know, bringing Billy in when he would come in, and that's, that's how the story came about. And I pitched it to Andrew Lanham, the writer, and he loved it and he, I was shooting, um, the judge at the time with the Downies and, um, I went to, uh, do I brought, we were in Boston and, and I brought the writer out there and we, he stayed in the same hotel as me and we, he started turning out pages and we would have these meetings in in his room and he would turn out pages and then he went away. And in, in that room in the hotel in Boston, we kind of like figured out the whole structure of the movie, basically mm-hmm. the on like, like on a chalkboard kind of way. right? And, and, and then um, he went away and he delivered a first draft. And I took that first draft to Jordan Schur, who was um, somebody had produced the movie that I was in before, and I had told him that I wanted to do this story. Um, and then I brought it to him, and uh, he, he loved it, and he financed it. So that's basically how it got started.
0: And so how did your, and I don't know how to pronounce your daughter's name. What is her name?
1: Layla. Layla. Layla.
0: Pretty name and pretty lady. And so how did she get a role in yeah. it?
1: <laughs> well, she was always going to play. I mean, I wouldn't have made it unless they were going to let me cast her. So. Right. And, you know, once I, once I got Ethan and, and, and Dane and Chris, it was like, you know i know how to like nowadays i don't make i make some mistakes but i don't make many anymore in the business when it comes to business in life i make all kinds <laughs> of mistakes. but in the business i'm actually learning i've learned a lot in my over 30 years and 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 you know i waited with telling who i wanted for the smaller parts mm-hmm. and, and this way i was able to bring in students and and my daughter and 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 stuff like that.
0: That's lovely. That's awesome. I want to see it. So, where where is it playing? Is it nationwide right now?
1: Now now it's on, yeah, it's on iTunes. It's on oh. on demand all over. Actually, it's on Apple TV, iTunes. It's on a lot of on demand places right now. Oh, that's good to know. A couple weeks ago, I think like it came out on iTunes like three weeks ago, uh-huh. and it got up to like number five on iTunes, which was pretty good.
0: Wow! Congratulations. Um, you know, I'm curious. You mentioned that your your father was an interior designer and that's where you got all of your artistic abilities. So I'm just curious as a little boy, were you artistic as a little boy? I was. Yeah. Not surprising. I was.
1: We all were. <laughs> yeah, we all were. You know, my sisters and I, we we used to put on shows to um we used to put on shows in our backyard. <laughs> full out shows to raise, uh, to, for people to, uh, bring us cans of food to send to Vietnam Wow, and stuff like that. That's much
0: better than what I did. uh, (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? (laughs) (laughs) I had a friend named Linda and, um, I was actually living with my grandmother for the summer while my mother, I'm from Maryland. So anyway, my, my mother was moving to California. It was 1977. I was nine. And, um, so my grandmother had all these tar cans in her garage because she, that's what she would use for the, you know, driveway. So Linda would play the drums and I had this list of songs that they had like, um, songs in the park that my grandmother would like to go listen to. And they were all sweet songs. And I would sing them like a punk rocker and just scream them. Like Jeremiah had a bullfrog and all, you know, all these crazy songs. And so we would like charge all the, all the kids in the neighborhood and my grandmother would come and watch, and I, 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 I was such a weird kid. And um, she would pay us, and we would get money from the kids, and then we would just go buy candy. So <laughs> you were doing something wonderful, and we just bought candy. Yeah,
1: I'm not, I think it was it was probably my mom's idea that yeah. we were getting the cans, or it could have been actually my oldest sister's idea, because she was like a at that point she was like a, uh, a hippie in training, yeah. or like a yippie in training, <laughs> I should say, you know? Um, but we were very, you know, we were, we were, we very, we were a very liberal family yeah. and, and, and so, and not just in our, in our beliefs about, um, the government, but also in our beliefs about, uh, people and,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to, that we needed in some way to, um, always have some kind of, um, idea and some kind of foundation in our family of giving back and, and, you know, uh, and serving in a way yeah. our neighbors, you know what I
0: mean? Like that yeah. kind of a thing. That's really and, cool. um,
1: my mom was, my mom was very, uh, uh, a real, she, she still is a, a real humanist and, and, um, she put that in us a lot because hmm. that's who we spent, most of our young childhood was, was was my mother phyllis and and she um she was an intense young woman at the time so it was uh it was a good education especially for um wannabe liberals like me and my sisters you know, back then and um and and so uh yeah
0: that's cool when i
1: don't i forgot what the question was yeah well it was yeah, just so we used to get these cans yeah and we used to put on shows and then i could also without ever taking an art class and i still have never taken an art class that i can i can draw and i can you know i can i went through a phase of oil painting a long time ago i'm not really maybe when i get in my 90s i'll start painting again <laughs> or something but i i actually like to draw i just like to draw with Pencil or pens, mm-hmm. and um, um, I can just, you know, basically I can doodle anything, and it's it's uh, I, I, um, it's good because it's it's it, it helps me with my thinking process, hmm. and the way well, my mind works and stuff. So it's th- that's
0: understandable. I mean, I'm not good at drawing, but I like to doodle, even though it's terrible. But I get it. I get what you're talking about. When you were, um, yeah, and it was it was uh, we
1: were so it was always that for me yeah even when we would when I would play with my friends I was always the one that invented the stories and I was always Mm. the one that wrote the scripts for our little shows with my sisters and I you know so and so it was like it was I I only I never thought about this stuff when I was young it just was like a kid behaving the way a kid behaves you know but in hindsight when I look back at things and think back at things um it becomes more and more obvious to me, what the family was like that I grew up in, and and how art was a big part of all of our lives, you know.
0: Yeah. How? When did you start becoming interested in, like, seriously interested in acting?
1: Um, it wasn't for a long time. I mean, my sister Beth, she was, she went to drama school in high school and all that stuff, and then she her dreams was to be. Uh, her dream was to be an actress, and I i really wasn't into that. I got into magic for a while, yeah. and um, my mom used to take me to all these magic conventions around the state yeah. of Florida and stuff, and I was, I, you know, there's a couple of silly things that I don't really talk about very much, but they're true, and then I was like the youngest magician in Florida to ever be taken into this the thing that they called the magician circle or the magic wow. circle or something like that, which was a kind of group of some very old magicians and, and younger ish magicians. But I was the only kid allowed to go in there because I was, um, appreciated by them in some way. Wow. And, Cause I'd met a lot of them at the conventions and, and I was able to figure things out and, and change things that they did into, younger versions of what they were doing and yeah so it's a silly little thing but no but that's
0: cool you know my my first boyfriend was a magician and i was so desperate for him to just tell me one secret and he never would which is what any any kind of magic trick that he did he would do something yeah anything i wanted i wanted a
2: particular trick
0: no 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 it was just anything and he, he was like no no that I, that I would break the code no it's <laughs> like okay
1: yeah we're it's really something that um i, I don't know you know you know the real reason why i i stopped doing magic was because of girls i stopped doing magic because of girls why because i felt like because at a very young age i thought it was um i thought it wasn't sexy <laughs> and so I, I
0: stopped huh. because of that. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, did a girl say something so to you, or stupid, was it just no something way. that you assumed?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that I remember, like, when I started junior high is when I stopped. Because huh. I, I think I did a trick for a girl in, like, class, and she just sort of, like, rolled her eyes at me, and they, <laughs> like, they, they laughed at me. So I was like, that was it. I was done. Oh. That was it. I packed it all up. It was all
0: done. <laughs> so you haven't really done anything since? Um,
1: I know I can still do I've I've grown up since then and realized that that's not really what life is like. It's not black and white. And and uh, no, I can still do tricks. I, I do them for my kids and I do them for people all the time just for, you know, when I'm in the mood. Right. Because you know, the kind of magic that I know you you don't have to have equipment. It's all about your hands and, you know, it's that kind of stuff. So um yeah, that, so that got me into being comfortable on stage. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, you know, there's this thing about, they, you know, I've heard this from other actors that have done magic before um, in books that I've read about Orson. And then other there's, a lot, there's many actors even nowadays that started with magic first. And once you've done magic and you've done it in front of a big audience, and you've done, like, really hard stuff, stuff that's not, that doesn't just work because there's some kind of gimmick that you buy, you know, that works mm-hmm. automatically. There's, there's magic like that, and then there's magic that actually requires skill. Mm-hmm. And to do that kind of stuff in front of a big audience, once you've mastered the ability to do that, you you know, I've never experienced butterflies or nervousness about a performance ever, mm-hmm. stage, no matter stage or if it's on any particular scene on the day when I'm shooting stuff or I just no longer have that that thing that yeah you know that the nerves like it's just I mean it, it's not always great because sometimes I don't like, take things as seriously as I should <laughs> but, but um it's it, it, yeah I think that it, I, I think they're right you know I think there's it's a there's a thing about live performances of a skill when you're just out there doing it and you're not hiding behind anything. And there's actually some kind of like intense kind of skill that's taken a lot of practice. I I think that once you learn to get away with that and once you learn to have, it's hard to match that really. Yeah.
3: Performance.
1: Cause yeah. Cause performance is so acting for me. It's so like, it's so personal and it's so interior that it it, I'm so focused on my interior and the other person in the scene or people in the scene. And, you know, I don't even think about whether it's good or not. I just think about doing it and then seeing what happens after and, you know, most of the times when I do things, I just dread that the director is going to say, let's do it again. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't want to do it again ever. <laughs> you know, and, and um, but, you know, you obviously, as you know, you end up doing it several times. So it's, I, I really do think that magic has a lot to do with, um, ha- has a lot to do with my ability to learn to be a good actor. because mm-hmm. I was never scared. Wow. And so I was constantly the first one to raise my hand in class. I was constantly, you know, the one that <clears throat> tried to pile on um, the work on myself and, and, and not feel pressured by it. And I think I had a lot to do with with me forming into a, 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 an actor that could handle certain stuff. You know.
0: What kind of uh, what did you study? Like I use, I studied the Meisner technique. I never, I, I never yeah. did method or anything like that. What kind of acting technique did you study?
1: Well, first it was, I knew of Meisner, and I sat in on a couple of Meisner classes. And I had actually some very good friends who studied Meisner. I still do, actually. And, um, I, you know, personally, just uh, as a side note, I think that, like most actors think, and I'm sure you feel the same way, that they all work. If they work for you, then they work. Right. So that's there's no real better one. It's just where you where you apply your studies mm-hmm. to. And so, when I first started, I I was with um, my first acting class with the American Stanislavski Theater Company, which was a company of actors run by Sonia Moore. And Sonia Moore is the woman that wrote all the books on Stanislavski um, back in the the uh, 70s and 80s, and 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 she was actually a student of Stanisławski. When I was studying with her, she was like 96 years old or something. And she had younger teachers with her, her studies under her as well, who had been to Russia and the whole bit. And so we studied with um, a couple of, uh, there was one woman who wasn't Russian, um, who was one of her American students, but there were two Russian, other Russian, um, one had come over directly from Russia while I was in Sonia's class. And another teacher was there already and they taught us what was called the, um, Stanislavski system of acting. It's what Stanislavski turned his method acting into after the first 10 years, the first 10 years of Stanislavski, he felt, which is what, which is what method acting is based on
2: mm-hmm.
1: the Strasberg and and all those guys, um, who formed the Actor's Studio back in the day, they took the first 10 years of Stanislavski's studies. This is after that. He did that because Stanislavski did that because he thought his actors were becoming too self-indulgent, which makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he couldn't keep control of them, which also makes perfect sense. And uh, so that's what we learned. And we, under Sonia Moore's supervision, we were only allowed to use that system of acting when we were traveling and doing plays with her and, um, and doing plays in the city, in New York city and stuff. And then, um, eventually uh, I studied with her and toured with her for like three and a half years. And then, um, and then I, uh, I don't know how Sharon Chatton came into my life, but somebody had told us about a woman who has just, just um, started teaching um, outside of Actor's Studio, a method actress. And and so we we asked her if we could join a class, my sister and I, and my friend Steve, who I met at the Stanislavski Theater Company. And, and we did, and I ended up studying with Sharon for six and a half years, I think. And during that period, I was doing all off-Broadway, and during that period, I did... I got on Broadway, and then during that period, I got Full Metal Jacket. Wow. And, and so she has stayed my mentor since I was 20, I think 20 or 21. Hmm. And Sharon lived in Los Angeles, and she is the woman who, when I teach in Los Angeles, I teach her class in Venice. She lets me take her class. Oh, wow.
0: I didn't know you te- that you also yeah. taught classes. How long oh, have you yeah. been doing
1: that? I teach in oh for a long time, like almost 20 years now. Wow. And um and I also uh teach in in New York I teach in a school atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I teach at the Strasberg Institute and they also have a scholarship there under my name that I give away every year um for for free um for, so so that a student can study for free. And um in fact I just picked this year's like uh, two weeks ago or something like that. Oh wow! And um, so every chance I get, I do this long, this kind of long, intense course um, at the Strasberg uh, uh, Institute on 15th Street, New York. And yeah, that's I've been teaching. Cool. So that's that's basically. Then I started studying with Sharon, and, and she's a method actress, and mm-hmm. I I studied I- intensely method acting and you know, and then, and I realized that, I mean, I call myself a method actor only because it's the closest thing to what I do, but I actually combine, it's basically, I should, I'm a Stanislavski actor really, because I combine what I learned with Sonia Moore and the, and in all of my emotional work, what I learned with Sharon. And, um, so it's a combination of of those two things.
0: So, with the, with the method, because I never studied it, so I just want to be clear when you're doing method, is it true that you um, fall back on memories or, or certain, um, yeah, certain memories to like trigger your emotion for a scene? Yes. Uh,
1: seven or years more. Yeah. If you're doing a film,
0: oh, okay, seven. it doesn't have
1: to be seven or years more, uh-huh. but if you're doing a play, if you want, if you want to use a very particular thing, an event
2: mm-hmm.
1: that happened in your life, then it has to be 70 years more because they, because, um, because we, we change our mind about things
0: oh, that yeah. happens
1: in our life as we evolve. Right. And, mm-hmm. and as we grow. And so if it's seven or more years, we're probably most likely pretty set in our ways about that particular event. And it's mostly not going to change. And, and so, um, but yes, so the answer to that is yes that's what we do and um it's a very hard thing to to learn mm-hmm. because it requires um uh blind you know uh ambition and and work and and perseverance and and then it just you're able to juggle choices in your head during takes and during scenes you can bring choices in and out within a particular line of dialogue and, and, and have them pull out emotionally affect you. And, um, not necessarily like a, uh, a sad way or, but even in a joyful way and Mm -hmm. things like that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's something that I use. I have to say that I, I said it before, I use it all the time. And, and I also know actors that use it all the time. Mm And I've seen some amazing work uh, happen in the class in in New York, and I've seen some amazing work happen with my my um, teacher Sharon Chatton's students in, um, yeah, I
0: can imagine Los Angeles you know some of
1: the some of the, uh, some of the guys and girls there are pretty talented hmm
0: i'm I'm curious because there's two scenes that come to mind I mean I haven't seen absolutely every movie that you've been in, but I've seen quite a few. And I, I, what comes to mind is Full Metal Jacket and the Homicide episode. Um, those are two episodes that I like to say like roles that take tolls or roles that take emotional tolls. And just real quick, when I was studying, um, we would you know in, in Meisner we would work in all areas like pain, happiness, sexuality. Um, and so I remember having to work in pain, and for the entire day. I was um, setting myself up, I guess I was kind of using method in that I was drawing on certain memories or certain, certain ideas that would, you know, cause me trigger emotions in me. So for the entire day before class, which was at night, um, I was working myself up and then, you know, get to the studio and I get in front of everybody and I do my thing and I'm crying and I'm, I'm really into it. And then the scene is over and I'm still a complete mess you know, I, 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 it was the first time I had ever done anything like that. And so I just figured that I would be done with it, but it stuck with me. So I, um, you know, and I wonder how somebody like you, when you're doing a film like Full Metal Jacket, where it's, you know, you, you have to go day in and day out while you're filming in, in this mindset. And in, in a case, I don't know how that film, um, or how it was filmed in sequence or not, but you have to stay in this, mindset. And so what is that yeah. like for you? I mean, can you let it go at the end of the day? Does it take a toll on you?
1: Um, it does take a toll, but it doesn't. But the, the more practice you get at it, the easier it is to let it go. I mean, if I had been in that class when you were doing that, if I had been teaching that class,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I would have taken your hands in my hands at the end of the, at the end of your scene. And I would have made you say, I would have told you to look at me and would have looked at each other in the eyes. And I would have said to you, you're an actress, say that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you would have said, I'm an actress. And then I would have looked at you and I would have said, it's my job. That's what I do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, and I would say, repeat that. And then you would repeat, it's my job. That's what I do. And I would keep doing that until the slowly your eyes would stop being so glassy and <laughs> You'd calm down and I said and then I would hold your hand and I would look at the rest of the class with you and say, It's our job. That's it.
0: Yeah. Wow. That would be great. That's my my coach do didn't my, do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I that's what I do with my students. That's what I do in my class because um people get worked up. When yeah. especially if they're working on something that's negative that brings back feelings like you were talking about, then That's, that's what, that's one aspect of an, of the answer to your question. The other aspect is that, um, so there is something about being more specific. I mean, that's basically the difference between method acting that they taught at actor studio than other techniques Mm -hmm. is how specific you are to the event. In other words, The more you attach yourself to that very particular event, not just working yourself up into an emotional frenzy and then your nervous system kind of takes over and then you have no control over it, that's that's one way of doing it and I've seen people do that and that's fine. But the closer and the more specific you are to a certain event that's causing you to be emotional, Mm -hmm. the easier for it is. Uh, the easier it is for you to let it go, the emotion, to let the emotion go once you let the event go hmm. at the end. So if you let the event go, the emotion is not, you know, being fueled by anything anymore and you have a better perspective. Oh, this is because of this and hmm. now I'm feeling this because I'm no longer specific about that.
3: Yeah. It's like that. Wow. So
1: that would be my answer. It's a two- Part answer, but
0: yeah, that my answer. that's kind of that's interesting. I mean, I've always wondered. And, you know, the other thing I yeah. want to ask you, and this is kind of from my dad, who loves you, and would love to interview you oh. as well. <laughs> uh, my dad is a Marine, and he was in the Vietnam War. So he's seen Full Metal Jackets so many wow. times. And he wanted to ask yeah. about Arlie Ermey. and Coward.
1: Yeah, Arlie or Hermie,
3: yeah.
0: Yeah, and he said that, you know, he, he told me, which I didn't know, that I guess he was originally hired to just, um, you know, talk to the guy who was yeah. hired to play the drill instructor, who I guess didn't do a very good job, and then Arlie took over.
1: Yeah, he was, uh, Arlie was a technical advisor on the movie right. when I first got there. And he was teaching us how to... Um, you know march and do monkey patrol with the rifles that's you know when they spin the rifles and do all the fancy stuff with the rifles you know for parade stuff and he taught us all that stuff and 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 taught us how to uh not kill ourselves on all the um obstacle courses and stuff and when we were handling the rifles and things and you know he he taught us how to take a like you know i can take a uh m1 together and uh, take it apart, and put it together blindfolded in 60 seconds. You know
2: wow. what I mean?
1: He, he taught us all that stuff, and and um, and so there was another actor there. I won't say who it was, but there was another actor there, and and he was hired to play the drill instructor. And while uh, Stanley was watching all of the um, all of the training going on, he was having somebody video, videotape the whole thing. He fell in love with. Lee mm-hmm. as the drill instructor and you know the the other actor you know wasn't a good day for him and he yeah. was let go and our uh, Lee was hired.
0: Uh, do you still um did you keep in touch with him after the film?
1: Occasionally yeah we would we would signal each other back and forth from afar you know he was a very different human being than yeah. me but we thought we bonded during the movie, and we, um, I like to think we kept that bond going over the years. Yeah. Wow.
0: That's cool. You know, there's, um, yes. I read, and I have a question, a very specific question for you about this. But um, I read that t- in order to play that role, you gained 70 pounds. And then here's a quote from you yeah. You said, It changed my life. Women didn't look at me most of the time. I was looking at their backs as they were running away. People used to say things to me twice because they thought I was stupid. So. I think that's so interesting and fascinating. But my question is, and this might seem odd, but it comes as a woman who was in that business. Um, Did you ever experience any kind of like body image issues? I mean, it's something that plagued me. But as a man in Hollywood, I'm wondering how it might have been for you. Was that ever a thing? All the
1: time. I mean, all the time. It's for me all the time, Hmm. you know, like my whole career been like that really because you know i'm a big guy and i'm naturally a big guy i went through a period when i was younger when i was um for some reason i guess my metabolism was working different or something Mm -hmm. but i was very thin and 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 um like very just very thin basically Mm -hmm. it all comes down to and very fit i'm you know i'm always i always am working out and doing stuff like that no matter what size i am i'm Mm -hmm. always working out i always try and stay strong you know because i don't want to fall over and die um,
0: (laughs) no please don't right so (laughs) yeah
1: and and so but you know um the you know i was always getting pressured on on shows and and from my uh old agents and Hmm. managers to keep my weight down and and stuff like that and you know through my whole career and and so yeah you know even up until you know like once you become like a staple kind of actor, like especially if you're a character actor mm-hmm. and you're appreciated because of your work, it takes a long time for that to happen. But then people stop bothering you about right. Stupid, that makes sense. You know? But in, until that happens, you get it. you know, I was pressured a lot about how much I would be ten pounds overweight and not my wow. normal slim, handsome self. You know, they would people would give me shit about it all the time. Yeah. Producers or whatever, you know, and I would just, you know, I would, I would get offended by it, you know. Yeah, it's it's like an it. uncomfortable I feeling.
0: Like I, I had an experience yeah. where, um, and I won't say this person's name either, and I've written about her, but I um, invited this this woman to my acting studio. We had what was called the professional level, and we would we would just work on our craft. It was, it was after we had graduated the Meisner technique and then the professional level was where we would either work on our craft or we would invite like casting directors and agents perform for them. And then, you know, if they liked our work, they'd call us in for legi- legitimate auditions or, you know, representing us. So anyway, I invited this girl who was not a member of the studio and she had to audition to get in and she did. And unfortunately, she, she used that studio um, for her benefit in not a very positive way. And wound up getting a lot of work, but she was, she started dating one of the casting directors and that's kind of how it started. But anyway, she told me, because we're both tall, I'm six feet, she's probably 5'11", and she told me that if I had, if I wanted to be considered sexy, that I would have to lose 20 pounds. And her comment to me, I mean, this was just a fellow actor, and at the time I was probably in my mid, like, probably like 27, 28 Um, she did, I mean, I don't blame her per se, but her comment triggered me into starving myself. And, you know, I mean, when I say starving myself, I ate, but I just didn't eat enough. And because I have, you know, large bones, I legitimately have large bones. I can't, I, I don't have like a narrow frame. So when I, if I get too thin, I look awful. And, um, so, you know, and, and I'm bigger than, I was a bigger than everybody else. And so it was something that, you know, this whole time that I pursued an acting career, um, I was very, I took everything very seriously and I would show up to my auditions prepared and I would try to dress the part and I would try to be very professional. Um, but the other part of me was also just constantly obsessing over my physical appearance. And so it's just kind of interesting to hear men have that experience too. I'm not glad to hear it, but it, well,
1: yeah, no, I, I think that it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's obviously not as common as it is with women. Yeah. it's, it's, but it, yeah, but your story doesn't surprise me at all. And, 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 um, you know, I, when I look at tapes of actresses, when they're auditioning for things that I'm involved in, like, um, for instance, the kids, you know, um, you know, I went through the whole um, process of casting because that's what you do. You know, even mm-hmm. though I knew that, you know, I wanted my daughter to play the part and all that. So you go through the, you know, you want to do the right thing because you wouldn't want somebody to not look at you if you were in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a director, you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I looked in, you know, a lot of the actresses were way too skinny. and And, you know, I would comment about it. I would say, you know, this girl is like she's she's obviously very unhealthy like she looks really bad and it's it's what goes on i don't know why it still goes on because yeah. it doesn't happen it, you know people can just stop you know doing <laughs> that but they but they don't i don't know why and i i think there's something about the preservation of youth yes that's attached to it which i also think is really weird and yes. gross and um to see these young, young women playing uh, partners to these older guys mm-hmm. in movies is kind of strange and odd to me that nobody points it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you know, to, to see, I, I don't want to, you know, I've never named names, but it's right. just, I, I you don't have to because it's, all ra- it's around us all the time.
3: Yeah. Know?
1: There's all these young girls being wives to all these older guys with kids, and it's like, it's not realistic. It's just not realistic.
0: Yeah. I, but, I mean, I've noticed a little bit you know, on so, commercials where you see some people who have more realistic body types. So maybe there's yeah, that's it's slowly. I yeah. Yeah. I'm Cause it's, it's really I, I hope awful.
1: So. I hope so. Because you know, I, when, when we, when I, we're, my wife and I are developing a couple of things, um, that look like they're going to actually happen for televisions like that. Oh, and, wow. you know, when, when I think of casting, you know, I'm casting like women. Like, you know, we're casting real women, not like yeah. somebody Yay. because of their weight. You know? Yeah. And we're casting somebody because of their skill and if they're right for the part. You
3: know what I mean?
0: Yeah. No. And and thank you. I mean, that's I appreciate it. I've had, obviously, I mean, I had one person who was kind of my peer say something, but I also experienced some, some comments from casting directors and producers and it really takes a toll because you know it's I couldn't ever I had such an issue with my body because it was it's not just about losing weight um even if I were to lose so much weight and be so thin I told like I said my body is my frame is large so I would look sick and weird and I would never be able to be that body type that I so desperately wanted and I mean I still I write about it now I mean I still battle um, certain kinds of body hatred as I get older, it's getting somewhat easier. Although, um, you know, getting older means more weight gain. Yay. (laughs) So it's like, I'm, I'm kind of like in between, you know, battling it and then kind of feeling like, well, I'm, I'm at a stage in my life where it's not so important for me to look a certain way. And I haven't been in the acting industry since I left, I think in, um, 99. So it's been a while since I've been in it, but, um, you know, but well,
1: you, a lot hasn't changed. I have to say, I mean, I can, I, like you said, I've slowly started to see things on television, Yeah, which is awesome. You know, you're actually starting to see also girls that look like real teenagers, Yeah, not models and, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. But, 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 you know, as importantly, you're seeing, um, you know, middle-aged women working. Yeah. And that's like, you know, really the way it should be. It's silly that it's not, you know, and, and look, granted, I have never been in that leading man category really, so I I was for maybe a very brief time in my career. And and so I really don't know what how much power they have when they're being when when a man or woman's uh partner in the story is being cast. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much pull they have, but it's it's sometimes it's really silly and I, I think they should fix that.
0: Me too. And now you're speaking now you're talking about being the leading, so I wanna bring up the whole wide world because I'd say out of all the movies you've ever been in, I think that's my favorite. And uh I think when did that come out? It was like nineteen ninety seven, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah. And so you played Robert E. Howard, and he was the author of the Pulp Fiction series Conan the Barbarian, and Renee Zellweger was in it. And I just have a really quick little story that I kind of told you on Twitter, but I'm going to tell everybody here, is that I saw that movie, and you instantly became a celebrity crush, and um, I wanted so desperately to meet you, so I, I thought, I'm going to write a script where... Um, it's going to be starring me and Vincent D'Onofrio, and it's going to be a wonderful script, and, and we're, going to, we're going to fall in love in the script, and then we're going to fall in love in real life. <laughs> I, I probably wrote about five pages and then gave up. So, um, but, but I love that movie. I just love it, love it, love it, love it. And so I was curious about um, you know, his, the character. He was really eccentric, and I'm just wondering like, what kind of research did you do to get into his head because he was so, he was just so different.
1: Yeah. So, you know, first, like, the script was brought to my attention by Dan Ireland, who has since passed away, and uh, you know, who I love dearly. He was a um, uh, 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 a guy who, you know, he started the Seattle Film Festival with um, a couple other people, and they, they, you know, he. This is a guy that his first job was in a cinema in in, in Seattle, and he, he's, you know, he was involved in film his whole life, and his dream was of course to be a director and he, and he went on to direct, he directed Jessica Chastain or something afterwards before he passed. And he was an, he was an amazing dude. And, uh, and it was written by Mike Myers and a very good writer, not, not the comedian Mike, Myers, right. another guy. And, and but also a very talented guy. And um, so, you know, Dan brought it, Dan brought that to me and, you know, I had been a Conan I read those Conan books when I was a kid and mm-hmm. I knew the Robert Howard books. and I you know and um, those those Conan books not only introduced me to fantasy novels but also introduced me to um, kind of uh, graphic novel mm-hmm. artists like Kazetta like Frank Zetta which Led Frank Frazetta's paintings. Led led me to other incredible artists. And to this day, I find um, a particular that one particular style of art. Um, just I'm just a fan of it. Mm-hmm. Big
2: time,
1: you know, so I know. You know, through Marvel, I've gotten to know all these great artists, and and it, it's just I just wanted to add that. Okay, <laughs> I and um And. <clears throat> Yes, I did. I I read the book. We uh, we went and met Noblin before she died.
0: Oh wow! Uh,
1: I to I wanted to confirm confirm certain things with her about him, and she was completely open. The only thing that she wouldn't admit is if, that she was in love with him. Really? But um, every, every yeah, she wouldn't admit it to me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that but everybody else around her did, and and. Um, and, and she but she answered everything else about his eccentricities and every, just everything mm-hmm. and, and um, I was you know it was very helpful and then it was the book and then it was there was only two photos of him available mm-hmm. and and so that was a little helpful and then you know I found it out through through other other people that, that, that knew him and that wrote. Little excerpts about him and different things that you know he would. He spent a lot of time down south, um, even further, even further east, um, southeast than where he was from, and like in through Louisiana, he did a lot of traveling around just for the hell of it, mm-hmm. and spent long amounts of time in different places, and and so that helped me with his kind of what his accent might be like, and mm-hmm. and and. How he wouldn't just have a plain old West Texas accent; he would have a slightly different one, and um, um, so all of that kind of work, yes, it, it, it entered into the storytelling a lot. Wow. But but the main focus was his um, eccentricity and and his love for for novelists yeah. and his ability his ability to not. Um, know exactly how to hang on to happiness.
0: Yeah. That was for him. And you guys did such a great job. I mean, like I said, I've seen that movie at she least was, five she's times. Amazing.
1: She's, she's amazing in it.
2: Really. Yeah.
0: Well, both of you, both, all, everybody in that film, The I, I don't remember her name, but the, I love the woman who played your mother also. I don't... Oh,
1: yes.
0: Uh, uh, yes. Her, um, Anne Wedbush. Yes, 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 yes. She's fantastic. But yeah, um, yeah who that I loved,
1: who I knew, who I knew for many, many, many years, and um, she. We had a, a, a very nice thing for her. And I for some reason, we. I don't know why, but I met her on a TV thing that I did way, way earlier in my career. She also uh, she played my mother uh-huh. in that too. Wow, and. And we had this kind of really great chemistry, her and I, and it was it was so nice.
3: Well, yeah, and it was lovely. It shows.
1: And yeah, and an incredible theater actress when she was young. She comes from a, a circle of actors from back in the day, like Rick Torn and, oh, wow. and uh, uh, George C. E. Scott, and all that group are were you know she she came from a pretty um, and you were circle of actors.
0: You worked with um, Campbell Scott, George C. Scott's son. Yes. And Diane Young, which was another one of my favorite movies. That was a little sad, though. <laughs> that was... Oh, um, yeah. Because he had cancer or whatever whatever it was that he had. But it was with you and Julia Roberts. About it. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, oh, you know, just real quick. I want to ask you about Homicide, but I just want to bring up, because I just think this is funny. Um, my mom and I both really enjoy Adventures in Babysitting, and you played Thor... But the funny thing is that um, you did a scene with Ron Canada and Ron Canada worked with my father. So they're friends. So I just think like, it's kind of funny, that little small world thing. I remember I actually my dad and, and I were having dinner with Ron and, and I, I remember asking about you. I don't remember what he said. It was so long ago. But this is kind of fun, little fun, little trivia there. Um, huh. <laughs> I don't know if you remember him, but that was that was that was a, I, we liked that what, movie. What part did he, he was what part the did he, he was play? the uh, detective. He was like, I guess, I don't know what, how old he was at the time. He's African-American. He's, I don't know how tall he is, but he kind of reminds me of, um, oh, of course, I can't think of his name. It was the voice of Darth Vader. Can't think of the guy's name. But anyway, um, yeah, like James, he, Earl. James Earl Jones. He kind of looks a little bit like James Earl Jones, just a little bit. But um, he's got okay. a real commanding voice and he played the detective who was after whoever. But I think you guys had a scene together. <laughs> just silly. Okay. Fun. Um, cool. But anyway, I want to I want to I do want to ask you about Homicide, um, because you yeah. you got an Emmy nomination for that. And oh, my God, I love Homicide. That's one of my all time favorite, favorite, favorite um, TV dramas. <laughs> and I just I'm, I'm trying to get my boyfriend into it right now. And the first episode that we saw was your episode. Um, it was just I just watched it like last week. And so I'm just curious, like how did that come about? And I also I want to know, like again, your mindset for playing a role like that. But how did it come about?
1: I think that um, Fontana uh, had a lot to do with it, and I, who was the producer of that show. Oh and, okay. Uh, I think I think that a couple of the guys involved in that show. It might even been Gary Fleeter, the director. I think. I think that everybody just agreed that they wanted to know if I would would do it, hmm. and um, you know, I read once I read the script, yeah. I was like, you know, it's, you know, it's too good to not to not do. And I wasn't. I have to say that at the time, I wasn't a big. Um, uh, I, I actually didn't know anything about that show, and didn't know anything about a lot of shows on mm-hmm. television at the time. And, and, and so, you know, once I read it, I, I like showed it to my buddy and I'm like, hey, who's doing this kind of stuff on television? Crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I went over there and did it. Yeah. basically.
0: That was so and good. We had to
1: do it. You know, We did it. It's like, I think they shot for seven days, maybe mm-hmm. eight days. But I think they had like four days to do our stuff and mm. four or five days and and so I just remember being on set and being in the hotel room learning dialogue you know just dialogue, dialogue, dialogue mm-hmm. it was like this two-hander between Andre Brower and myself and and he's such an amazing actor yeah and it was a really it was really nice you know we didn't know each other at all and we spent <clears throat> a lot of time together on set obviously and it was uh, very cool you know it was it was a quite a. It was quite an intense few days. It's kind of a blur. Hmm. I don't really think a lot have a lot of memories. I remember. I remember being between the train and the and the platform, and I remember. Um, how quickly they shot, and I remember certain emotional peaks
2: mm-hmm.
1: about performing it. But it was it was quite something, and there wasn't a lot of direction. Um, I think that Andre and I settled into it fairly quickly and, and just kind of ripped it out, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so it was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't seen it. I've never seen it. Really? So I, yeah, no, I've never seen it. And, and I, I don't, I don't see anything that I have control over. Have, no, I've never seen it. Wow. So some things you have to go see cause you have to go to premiere and stuff like that. But, um, but so that's one that I've never seen. And, and it's uh but I remember doing it and I remember it working. So, I'm yeah, glad, you know, I, over the years. And I'm glad that it also got like a Peabody. It won a Peabody really? award that show. Well,
0: it's not surprising. Yeah. Well, you know, I was curious, too, as far as your I mean, I don't know if you're going to remember this, but clearly, you know, you, your character was going to die. And yeah, did you play it? Because because in the in the in the show you were kind of like in denial, um, so I'm wondering yeah. as a character, were, when you were in denial, do you remember if you were able were were you like um, playing it as if you knew you were going to die, and you and you were working hard to convince yourself you weren't, or were you in true denial as the character?
1: I I think that what I did was like fell into his. I, what I did is I focused on the worst aspect of him as a person outside of being stuck between a train and a platform mm-hmm. just in life that his, that he was not, um, at his worst, he was not a very nice person and that he was impatient
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that I'm, I talked to a couple of people for other things that I had done. And a lot of times, um, under, Extreme pressure that comes out in us, like right. a human thing, and and so I, I thought, well, that's a. I thought to myself that that's a clear path to take um, to kind of exhibit denial.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, Interesting. you
1: can't kind of act denial. You have yeah.
2: to
1: kind of act something else that makes the audience understand that you're in denial. So that that was my 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 path. I remember that was the choice I had made. And it was important to the writers, um, that, uh, that I, that, 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 did come across as that the denial thing was as real as possible. So I had, it was one of the tasks at hand. Yeah. I had to, um, I had to figure that out.
2: Wow. So, yeah.
0: So it was so good. I mean, I don't know if you're ever going to watch it, but if you do, you'll see how great it was and and i I love andre Brower too he's so he's so wonderful and i like I said, I'm trying to get my boyfriend into that show um because it's just such a fun it's, it's a fun thing it, it's like so intense, so many of those shows were intense, but they were so well written um I have a few more questions for you, but I wanted to know um do you have a favorite like favorite movie favorite character
1: well it's always not not for any other reason than. Stanley Kubrick but it's always going to be Full cool Metal Jacket because Stanley hmm. gave me my career right so I can't I can't detach myself from how much that means to me
3: Yeah,
1: it's more than anything else I've done before it's, I've had great experiences and I've had really amazing learning experiences on films and I've experienced immense amount of joy on films and and things like that but I can't help but feel like Full Metal Jacket is the most uh, meaningful one.
0: I because saw yeah and I saw you um, I want I want you to relay a story that I saw you talk about on in another interview okay. and that was on the film um, Full Metal Jacket and it was the thing involving the crane do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah of course yeah <laughs> So I want you to share that.
1: Okay, so we're in a field in Becton, which was, it was a, I wonder if we were in Becton. I think we were in Becton. We were somewhere where they had made the, um, Becton outside of of London, Mm -hmm. where they had made the set for the obstacle course and stuff like that. Mm. for Paris Island um, where the Marines train
2: mm-hmm.
1: And we're all out in it. there's like 300 uh, extras and are and us and most of the extras are Brits
2: because
1: mm-hmm. um, they didn't have any dialogue and we were in England, so they were all Brits, all young guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had these they had these three giant rings of tires painted yellow in the circle, big rings about, you know, like maybe a hundred feet across three of them. And and in front of every tire was a, was a grunt in training. And then Stanley was about, I guess, 50 feet away or something, or maybe a little longer, maybe 50 yards away. He was up on a crane trying to pick a lens to shoot the sky and to shoot all these Marines and training around me, the, uh, all these recruits around me, the yellow, these yellow tires on a green field. And he was up there for a long time and kept coming down and getting back up and getting down and coming back up. And we were all sitting there and, you know, lunch had passed by. We hadn't broken for lunch yet or anything. And we're all sitting there and, uh, the, and, um, somebody in the back somewhere from somewhere yelled, you know, uh, get off the fucking train. But, Get off the fucking crane, <laughs> to Stanley, and and he yelled it a, a couple of times in, until Stanley uh, asked the first AD, Terry Needham, to that he wanted to come down. And they brought him down, and he walked over with Terry Needham, who was a a, a rugby player, ex rugby player, amazing dude, hmm. and they walked over together and and. Um, and Terry spoke to him. He said, Okay, who said it? And then nobody answered, of course. <laughs> and so we, Matthew and and and, and, Barless and I, were sitting there and like, we're like, we didn't know who said it either, but we wouldn't have said anything, you know, because <laughs> there were so many guys. And it wasn't, definitely wasn't from our ring of tires, you know.
2: <laughs> and so,
1: come on, guys, who said it? Nobody admitted it. And they finally said, you know, something to Terry. And then Terry said, All right, just be patient. We're going to do this. They walk back, and Stanley goes back up on the crane, and then another half-hour passes or something. And it just feels like this is never going to happen. And then sure enough, again, somebody (laughs) yells, get the fuck down off the crane, you know? And uh, Stanley immediately turns back to to the group, and they bring him down. He comes stomping over again with Terry. And Terry says, okay, come on. He said it. Come on, guys. We're not going to get on with today until somebody just admits it, and that's it. Nobody says anything. So they stand there for a little while, and they're talking. We have no idea what they're saying to each other. And um, so Terry gets a little angry, and he says, so just shut the fuck up, everybody. (laughs) So we go back. They go back to the crane, and we're all sitting there, and Stanley goes back up. And And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And then sure enough, somebody said, I said, get the fuck down from the crane. And uh, immediately Stanley came down. (laughs) Ken, they came stomping over Terry's. All right, that's enough. Who the fuck said it? (laughs) And Stanley said, come on, guys. He was very upset. (laughs) Come on, guys. Who said it? And then one of the guys in the very far back stood up and said, "I'm Spartacus." <laughs> and then somebody else stood up and said, "No, I'm Spartacus." And then somebody else, "No, I'm Spartacus." <laughs> and, you know, Stanley. If you don't know, Stanley directed. Spartacus yes. <laughs> a great scene. Yeah, which is basically the same scenario. Oh It was very funny. Well, they had a great sense of humor. And then Stanley, Stanley was kind enough to break us off for lunch and we broke, and that was it. Oh, that's so that awesome! The day. the day was over after that.
0: That is so funny. I love that story. Thank you for telling it. Oh, my God.
1: It's it's an awesome story. It's a great story to tell because the the Brits were so much a part of making that movie. Yeah. And then um, I have to say I can't tell that story without um, also telling a story of how amazing Stanley Kubrick was as well. Um, You know, Stanley, he has has this uh, reputation of being a little nutty or whatever. You know, the truth is, is that he wasn't and that I work, I've worked with far more crazier people than he'll ever <laughs>
2: have
1: been and, and and also far more uh, mean, nasty mm-hmm. people than he he ever was. Mm-hmm. And he, he, I mean, seriously, though, he was quite a guy. And um, Matthew and I used to go to his house uh, on weekends and he would show us movies. He had a big uh, screening uh, dubbed, he had two big projectors that he would thread the movies himself, and we would watch these films. In his, um, the first time I saw *Purple Roads of Cairo* was at his house.
2: Hmm.
1: He would show all these like uh, really cool movies that I, I, just never seen for some reason. And, and uh, you know, we would talk. We would just hang out and drink beer and talk. He was an amazing guy, and 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 I remember the night before we were going to shoot the big scene where I killed the sergeant and then kill myself. He, um, he wasn't big on giving direction. A lot of directors are not,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: they, they believe that they, they do their job in casting it and they rely on you to, to bring it in. You
2: know? mm-hmm.
1: And, and so he wasn't big on story and he wasn't big on, on, um, talking to actors about story, talking to actors about their own personal performance. He was big on story because he was, he was always focusing on it as far as from a directing point of view. Um, but he, we were walking that night to our cars and we were going to shoot the, that big scene the next morning first thing. And, and he, he called my name and uh, I turned to him and, and he, he asked me like for the first time, like, do you know what you're going to do tomorrow? And I said, Yeah, I think so. I think I know, you know. And he said, Okay. Um he said, Okay, and there was just like this long pause and he said, you know, it has to be big though. It has to be like long cheney big. Huh. And and I was like, Okay, I get it. <laughs> and and I went uh into my car and you know, I I I remember this huge smile came over my face and um, number one it was because he he was giving me a direction and that was just so cool to get mm-hmm. a direction for Stamps. That was just alone in a nerdy way that was <laughs> and and then the other thing was is that I had at home in my flat in London I had a stack of black and white horror movies. And most of them were Cheney films. Wow. junior and stuff like that. And that is exactly what I had been working on for, for what I was doing. And I was just, it was like Christmas. Yeah. It was like, he gave me this gift of confidence without even knowing. Right. That was like, I, I swear, I can't explain it any other way than it was like Christmas. Yeah. It was like, wow. Like a child looks at Christmas, you know? And, and, yeah. So he he was very intuitive and you know I I don't know why he gave me that direction. I never asked him. I don't know hmm. if he knew that that's what I was working on or or whatever, but it was uh it was pretty amazing. Well, it
0: sounds meant to be. It just sounds meant to be. And you know, I mean, I've seen that film more than once, but it's been quite some time and in preparation for this interview I watched that that scene and I, I forgot what happened and it's so intense and it's yeah. just everything about you, the look on your face and, um, just everything. It was, it was so, it was meant to be clearly. It was just something, it was like that perfect, that perfect moment where everything just comes together. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: think so, um, just a, a side note on that. So there was, there do you remember the um the nursery rhyme three blind mice? Yes. So when I was a kid there was I'm not gonna go into specifics about it, but there was an event in my life that where that little thing was playing that thing was playing on um on morning T V mm-hmm. um in some kids' show on a weekend. And and so I used that um, that nursery rhyme in 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 for that scene in the in the studio. It wasn't a regular film studio. It was this like big building that they built the interior barracks on, mm-hmm. and uh, so the barracks were uh, were built inside another building, and and in the building there were these old. I don't know if you've seen ever seen those these big cement round things that fit in the ground they're like big they connect together to make like a tunnel underground okay big brown cement pipes that you can stand in they're like that big okay and they had one of them set up with pillows in it and stuff for us all to hang out in in between Hmm. and so so before the we started shooting i went into one of those and i did a relaxation and i started the uh, doing the three blind mice over and over again in like a monotone voice and it put me in this state of uh, just like right on the edge Mm -hmm. of non-clarity of of a kind of blackness without clarity
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and it was so during that Whole sequence we did three takes of of me of my side not including the special effects where not including the blood coming out of my right. head, but three like performance takes and in between i would keep that nursery rhyme going and so that's a good way to explain what method acting is that like right. you can use Particular things that stem from particular events to focus on
3: wow. that puts you
1: right in the right mood, yeah. and t- and you can tip it emotionally any way you want while the scene is going while the camera is rolling. And so that that's a good example of method acting where mm-hmm. I've used it in a performance, and I was very young at the time, and, and <clears throat> obviously had never done anything like that before, mm-hmm. and I it was so instilled in me to do the work that um, I actually did it. And I, I remember I actually used it. And, and, and I remember not knowing if anything was happy because we just did it three times. And if, if everybody was happy, I mean, and then we did it like three times. And then, you know, Stanley called me over and asked me, you know, to watch it with him, watch it back. And we watched all three takes. And I remember his hand, he put his hand, we're sitting in those those director chairs. Right close to each other, he put his hand on top of my hand and, and kind of like slapped it a little bit mm-hmm. on, the, on the second take, and I knew that that like that was his way of telling me I, I nailed it up. right.
3: And,
1: and you know that that you know that that memory of that whole scene is what was what I was saying before about what my favorite movie yeah. will always be because of Stanley and the way he was and the way he trusted me and the way he, in his own very, very smart, unique way, nurtured a young actor and let them not only be original, but uh, do the right thing for serving his story. Yeah. You know, it's very unique. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's really cool. And that's, that's, that's interesting because I've, because like I said, I never did method acting and I never studied it. So that's, it's a good example to provide to make it clear as to really what it is um all right well before i let you go i do want to ask you a little bit about uh your twitter feed because you you use it for a variety of things you sometimes you're poetic um today i loved your tweet and i actually retweeted it um you had said i'm gonna see if i can find it right here do i have it you said okay uh well, I didn't realize how many perfect people there are out there. I guessed you have nothing left to learn. And my guess is that you are all white, perfect white people. Well, I'm an imperfect white person, and I've learned a lot, and I'm still learning and fighting for equality, which, first of all, thank you very much. But um, just curious, like, what what brought about that tweet? Well, I I just think that, you
1: know, people... You know, with the what isms and, and their excuses about not questioning themselves in any way. I it think it's you know, I it think it's silly and I yeah. and, you know, in a in a in a format like Twitter where it's basically only your words you can use to make a point, not inflection yeah. or circumstance. You know what I mean? It's just words.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: they're in a context of being in a very kind of hostile, hostile <laughs> yeah, place, right? So so, so you have, you know. So I, it's, you know, it was it was in defense of, um, we're just a, that we're not perfect, but to pretend like you are. Yeah. If somebody calls you a racist, then you better look inward before you punch back. Better look inward first. and yeah. See, because if you're white and privileged, then the chances are, is you're being called racist because you've made some kind of mistake and you haven't realized it.
3: Right. And
1: you should look inward and, and 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 search yourself to see if that's true. And I have a feeling that most likely, in that context of being white and privileged, that you're going to find that you are in the wrong, mm-hmm. and that even if you were naive, and it wasn't malicious. It doesn't mean it doesn't come across racist. Right. You need to fix that. You need to fix that. You need to reset. that was my point
0: for that. Wow. You know, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I started getting involved in um, writing about politics and um, becoming a feminist activist online in 2012. And it all pretty much started on the initial, well, it wasn't the initial, but it was like in recent history, the initial War on Women um, and Rush Limbaugh calling Sandra Fluke a slut because she wanted to have private schools offer birth control in their private insurance. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. um, my first article that ever got me going was um, open letter to Rush Limbaugh from a liberal slut. And I, I certainly didn't intend to get into the political arena, but that's that kind of catapulted me in, and then I, you know, found my voice as a feminist. And so through my journey, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. So I grew up with a certain kind of a feminism. And now things are, you know, a little bit more politically correct than they were when I was younger. So I've recognized in myself where I've accepted, um, you know, certain patriarchal norms, or, you know, I mean, I I was never the person who would call women a slut. But I would, I, I certainly had my opinions about certain kind of women where now, I can look back and, and, and as I've been growing, I've realized it's like, oh, wait a minute, I have to evolve here because the way that I'm thinking is really not helpful. And so it kind of goes Hold. to your point. Yeah, it's like everybody should be able to, you know, if somebody has pointed, I've made mistakes online and people will point it out to me and I really do think about it. Because I think that, you know, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of uh, right now I, I hear a lot of people complaining about, oh, this crazy PC culture. And sometimes I think it goes a little too far. But for the most part, um, I think that there are, you know, there are such things as microaggressions. And as a woman, I've certainly dealt with them in the workplace and and. Um, you know whether it was acting or whether it was I used to be a sales rep, and so these little tiny aggressions that come at you, and it's very hard to point your finger and say, "Hey, you're being aggressive," because it's so teeny. And then if you're going to bring it up, then then you're accused of being overly dramatic. And so you know, I mean, I've recognized growing up over you know these several years online. I mean, not growing up, but to me, it's like growing up because I've been learning so much um, that. It is. You, everybody should kind of take a step back. Recognize that we do have privilege. Even if we're poor, even if we're upset, even if terrible things have happened to us, white people still have that benefit. And um, I'm going off onto a tangent now. But going back, I just want to ask you no, about... Uh, you're totally right. I agree with
1: you 100%. You're totally right. Now is the time to do before you punch back is to look inward. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. If there was ever a time... Now.
0: now is the time especially now and and I'm just curious as yeah. far as your, your your because you do talk about politics you I think it, it seems to me that you kind of keep it you know you don't necessarily talk about um, Trump per se but you just talk about what you see going on what is it that makes you feel comfortable as a celebrity is it because you're so nailed in as a celebrity that you feel confident you can talk about your political views without losing fans or how how like what motivates you to post about these political liberal issues?
1: Well, I, I, the, the thing about losing fans is not a concern. It's just not, I mean, it's, that's too, I think that that that's, people bring that up a lot. Like Mm I'm not going to be your fan anymore and (laughs) all that stuff. But I think that that's, that's like too black and white. Things are not that
3: simple. You
1: know what I mean? Um, I I think that when people truly consider art, you know, unless it's done in the form of like propaganda, you know, one has nothing to do with the other, mm-hmm. and 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 so it's not something I can ever take seriously. If somebody doesn't want to be my fan, then <laughs> they have the right to do that. And it's like I'm not gonna get upset at them. For yeah, it. it's like whatever, okay? <laughs> do what you need to do. Yeah, you know. But but as far as being able to speak out—I mean, I, I think that there is a—I a, a, think that there is good reason to to hold back a little bit, but that's only because of safety
3: mm-hmm. stuff like that. Right. Because I am
1: a public figure and I am recognizable, so therefore, if I'm recognizable, then I'm also a target. So there is—I do refrain. From saying some stuff because of that, but I, 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 if I can base what I'm saying in the truth—and I look, I've made mistakes before, and I, I've, I've also had to uh, say I was sorry or, mm-hmm. or, which I don't mind doing. Uh, yeah, that's very much a part of life. And, yeah, me too. And so, um, yeah. So, and I, I think it's super important.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Especially
1: as we get older, I think it's important to, to learn to to become comfortable with apologizing.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: So, but the, but I, you know, I, I get concerned, you know, about safety and stuff like that. Right. People, you know, they, they, who knows, right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as far as the truth and, and and I'm careful about what I decide the truth is, is um, I don't mind putting it down. And I also like to, express myself in a way that i always have whether i'm in a really good mood or a crazy mood or a silly mood i can write
2: Mm -hmm. and i
1: can write words and i can write them stream of conscious Mm -hmm. and people are either going to get them or they're not i mean most likely more than you know a half are not going to even understand what the fuck i'm saying (laughs) but every once in a while somebody will say oh i totally get that yeah and 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 that's what art is. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm happy that even with my dyslexia, I'm able to put a sentence together and and write a poem or do a a kind of piece that sort of comes under the definition of being like a fake journal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the idea of being able to do that. And, and it's what I use Twitter mostly for mm-hmm. um, when it comes to the my artistic side, and um, I don't find it as int- I don't find it as interesting if I'm there to promote my work.
3: You right? Know, yeah. I've never
1: been into promoting my own work, or well, I do, but it's it's more interesting to me to create.
3: Yeah. Something,
1: you know, and so it's um, and so that's why I, I I do it. And a lot of the things that I do, the kind of journals that I write on there, are you know they're leaning they they obviously they lean left and. Yeah. And or they're so ambiguous, like, what the fuck? <laughs> but but it's also they are, you know, it's also fun for me to do and I enjoy doing it. So that's why I do it. And I think that that as far as I was, you know, I was thinking about it. I get riled up and uh, still by what people say to me sometimes. And but, you know, I think because it's as we all know, it's just words. And you can't really hear the person saying it. And and it's not really nine out of ten times very, like, intelligible where you would actually be threatened by it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like I get upset in, like, a where's my keys. Kind of <laughs> I, I like, I get upset, like, on that level. Yeah. But not any more than that. Like, it's not, like, something that doesn't, it's not something that sticks with me. Right. For the past a few seconds, you know. But. So, so I think that it can be a hostile place.
3: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah,
1: but it's not that. It's not that bad. As long as you're careful, as long as you're not, you know, attacking people in Mm -hmm. a way that they're actually going to take it and you know they're actually going to come and hunt you down. Right. You know what I mean? It's like if you do that, then you're just being stupid. Of course, yeah. So I think that's my opinion, anyway. I think you're being stupid if you're provoking people to the point where. They're actually going to come get you. And if, if you're a public figure, then you're a target. And that would be a really dumb thing to do. Yeah. Um, even though my beliefs in equality and in, and in women's rights and, and <clears throat> you know, just straight down the line, these, this kind of um, very kind of leading part, liberal, democratic. I mean, you can't get any more than my wife and I. <laughs> and it's, Yay. It's just that's just the way we are. I just think that I just think that I hold a lot back, but I also make it very clear that if they're on my feed, that that's what they're yeah. you know they're dealing with. But I'm welcome to you know I sent out tweets today about um, you know somebody tweeted to me that oh you you just think that all conservatives are racist and um, you know I tweeted back that's not true actually I have a lot of friends that are conservatives and they are definitely not racist mm-hmm. otherwise they're definitely not racist. I mean, I know. Otherwise, we wouldn't. They wouldn't be our friends, right? And we just would have so much to say to them if they were. That believe me, they would run from us. (laughs) And so, you know, it's it's silly comments like that that you know they happen so many times in a day. Yeah. Like they're just so stupid that how can you really
3: take it seriously? Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I mean I I had an experience once where somebody said something to me and I really took it to heart and I mean they were criticizing me and obviously they were probably a conservative and and then I went over and visited I think this was Facebook and I went over and visited their profile and looking at them I just thought why am I allowing this person to get me upset? I mean I don't even know who they are and For all I know, they're just a fake, fake account or a troll. And, and so, I mean, I certainly, when I use Twitter, because, I mean, I use it a little bit of an, because I'm an activist. Um, And I also, as a feminist who is very, very upset about what's going on right now, you know, I mean, I certainly have the ability to put out my anger, but it's, um, I think, I try to use some humor, but I am angry, you know, and I, sometimes I wonder, I get criticized for hating, you know, there's some men that have criticized me who oddly enough met me online as a feminist and saw me screaming about whatever, you know, whether it was reproductive rights or whatever, screaming about it. And they are right on board with me. And then, you know, a year or two goes by and then they say, you know, I just can't take you because you hate men. And it's like, what? (laughs) I just, no, I don't hate men. I hate patriarchy and and I'm going to scream about it. But Um, but I do understand what you're saying because, you know, you do come up upon these people on Twitter. And like you said, there's, there's no voice inflection and it's just words. And sometimes people don't understand what you say. And oftentimes I'll get a tweet and I'm like, what did, what are they even talking about? I don't even know what they're saying to me because they maybe don't have great writing skills and it's just difficult to determine what their message is. But so it's like you said, you can't take it too seriously. I mean, you, you, I like to use it as, um, an opportunity to spread information. Unfortunately, one of the uh, the things that I've been focusing on is is rape. It, it's just it's so awful, and it, I won't go into it now because it's just I don't want to end on rape. But but it's just you know it's something that I want to bring to everyone's attention when things are happening and people aren't getting proper punishment for it. You know I want to make sure everybody knows so that they stay out. Right now. Yeah, very um, relevant. Yeah. It's just it's awful. Like
2: one of the biggest things.
0: Yeah and yeah. so I you know I mean I want it to be there's you know it's called rape culture and it's something that feminists have been talking about for years and and it's starting to like you said it's very relevant right now so it's something that I even though it's a depressing subject it's we need to be talking about it so um but I don't want to keep talking about it because it is rape but and the, I, other
1: <laughs> thing about it, the other thing about it is that is that every well most women are talking about it yeah if most women are talking about it then everybody should be talking yeah everybody
0: especially when the president the has been accused of rape many times yeah, yeah, so
1: yeah and they're not like you know it's no longer this kind of thing where you need to talk about quietly somewhere right and you're not going to be heard it's like it's very relevant to what yeah. what's going not in our country right now and other countries as well yeah and so it is uh yeah, I mean, I needless to say, it's of utmost importance. The other thing I wanted to say is that about um, about Twitter in particular is that, um, you know, I mean, I assume that most people use it to read. Uh, I mean, I use it to read. I, I, I follow... Um, not blogs but I follow magazines and
2: mm-hmm.
1: all of my interests you know and I read on on Twitter mm-hmm. and and so people like you know I'll get into like I'll be sitting in my trail for like two hours
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: and I'm done with like reading the book or I'm done with reading a script that I don't really like anyway <laughs> and 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 I'll open up Twitter and I'll look for an article and then somebody will tweet something to me and say hi. And then I'll tweet something and say hi back. And then a conversation starts between me and a thousand people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I'm on Twitter for an hour in my fucking trailer. <laughs> and, and so it's entertaining. Yeah, You know, it's a way to pass time. It's entertaining. And it, and it and if I find a really good article, I'll just stop and I'll read that for whatever it takes, 20 minutes or yeah. whatever, and then continue. And it's, uh, you know, it's also, you know, I have to say that I've met some pretty cool people like yourself, and read about them, which I didn't know anything about you before you I saw one of your tweets and And I'm impressed and inspired by people like you and people out there that are doing the same kind of thing you're doing and you know that's something that was not in my life before twitter right and not not in the same not in the same vein and not in the same um, um quantity right and so that's really important to me and um other people use facebook and, and, and um, instagram and stuff like that i for my personality type mm-hmm. twitter is is the best way to go because it's um it's more fast moving and and I can search through it quicker. Yeah. For some reason my brain works with Twitter better than the
0: other formats. But uh... yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. I mean, what a compliment. And I agree with you. And just FYI, my cat is in here and she's meowing. So if you hear her, she's saying hello to you. But um, yeah, I mean, Twitter is is I've gotten to meet people like you and Kristen Johnston and Alyssa Milano and um, you know and like sure. I I said earlier with Alyssa Milano and I'll just real quickly tell you. Um, you know, I became an ERA, Equal Rights Amendment advocate, in 2012 because I was speaking at a rally in DC and this woman approached me and she said, do you think men and women are equal in America? And I said, yes. And she said, no, they're not. And then she explained it to me. And that's when I was starting to become a blogger and I thought, oh, I'm gonna make this my, you know, my main mission in life. I'm gonna focus on the ERA. And so I did, and there's a long history to it, but part of that history I think I met her, yeah, in 2012. So I was kind of looking for literally Alyssa Milano, but I didn't know. I was looking for somebody who was famous, who um, would take it on in a way that I wanted to, where it was like you just dive in and occasionally, you know, I found this person and I, I found there was a girl that um, I knew. Her name is Madison Kimmery, and she's a 12-year-old who took on the North Carolina governor because he got rid of pre, pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds for voting. And she's so smart. And she actually wound up blogging for the site that I worked for. And because of it, she's met Barack Obama. She was invited to the White House, and she worked with Hillary Clinton. But, I, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe she can be the one who's going to, like, catapult the ERA she wasn't the one. And then like I, you know, long story short, I was in a, in a DM group with Alyssa and I had mentioned uh, to somebody else, um, you know, hey, it was this guy, Renato Mariotti. He was running in Illinois as the attorney general. And so I asked him if he was aware about it. And then she kind of jumped in and she said, I'm going to make this my new mission. And when I saw her say that, I, like, freaked out because it was right after the Me Too movement. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, you know, she could have easily just done one tweet and and been done with it. But she's taken it so far that um, I don't know if you watched the Democratic debates, but three candidates mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment. And it's mainly because uh, Alyssa has been out there working so hard to make this happen and there's a group of us, but you know she's the high-profile one. So like places like Twitter, right. it, it gives you an opportunity to hook up with people that you would never dream of. And so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely so. wonderful. Yeah. And then you know I have to tell you it's this. So. She's gonna kill me if I don't mention this, but I. I I talked with Feminist Next Door. Her, her name is M, but she was on my podcast last week. And when I told her that you were going to be on, she completely flipped out, and she said that she loves you so much, and she loves Law and & Order, and she, she watched Columbo growing up, and that, you know, you were like Columbo on Law and & Order, and so she just wanted me <laughs> to let you know. So you are just so well-loved by everybody, <laughs> except for those conservatives who don't get it. <laughs> right. But... Um, <laughs> I, said hello. I will. I will. I'll let her know. But, you know, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I was a little nervous because I've never done this before. I've never interviewed an actor before, even though I've been one. But um, it's it's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. And look, you know, I, I know you will anyway, but keep up the good work. <laughs> and uh, it's it's amazing that there's women like you out there. And um, it is Really, really, truly appreciate it.
0: Well, right back at you. Thank you, Vincent. Okay. All right. Take care.
2: Okay, bye
1: Bye-bye. bye. Bye bye. Bye.